you guys. How you doing? All right. What a great crowd. I should have went to college. Get my thoughts together here. There they are. All right. Yeah, he's right. I wrote some books, and I'm working on another one right now. It's called Provoked, How America Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine. I hope to have it done by the end of the year, but no promises, but that's what I'm going for. Um, but it obviously raises a question, provoked, what exactly does that mean? And of course, the War Party will say that any time that you try to explain why America's adversaries do what they do, that you're taking their side and somehow are loyal to them, uh, or even otherwise, just excusing their actions. But there's a difference between a reason and an excuse, and it's perfectly fine if we watch the nightly news to describe the motives of a murderer, uh, if somebody kills for the money or for revenge or whatever it is, to explain that is not to justify it. As we see in American foreign policy, America's adversaries constantly, certainly in my lifetime, have, are always provoked by the United States government into being our enemies and justifying our fight. Take, for example, the war on terrorism. Now, um, a lot of people know that in the aftermath of Vietnam, the American people have what's called the Vietnam Syndrome. They don't want to do that anymore. And so America's brightest foreign policy minds decided instead of the containment policy against the Soviet Union, they'd get smart and they'd give them their own Vietnam and bait the Soviets into invading Afghanistan. And they did. And in the Jimmy Carter years and the Ronald Reagan years, America backed the Afghan Mujahideen, but also the international Islamic brigades of mostly Arabs, but Muslims who traveled from all around the world to Afghanistan to fight against the Soviets. And of course, that included Egyptian Islamic Jihad and the Azam group that eventually merged and became Al-Qaeda. At the same time, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, through the 1980s, backed Saddam Hussein in his war against Iran. It lasted through 1989. But after the Iran-Iraq war was over, Iraq invaded Kuwait in a dispute over war debts and overproduction from shared oil wells and disputes along those lines. And so America launched Iraq War I, Desert Storm, to force the Iraqis out of Kuwait. A short, successful war. Except that in the aftermath of the war, George Bush encouraged the Shiite supermajority of the country to rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein. They took him up on it and they tried it. But then Bush Sr., he changed his mind. And he left them high and dry like the Bay of Pigs to, the Bay of Pigs to be slaughtered. And why did he do that? He did it because he realized that they were now importing the Iranian revolution that they just spent eight years supporting Saddam Hussein to contain. Oops. So they called it off. And Saddam massacred 100,000 people to put down that insurrection. And then that became the excuse to stay at the bases in Saudi Arabia in order to enforce the no-fly zones and the blockade against Iraq in order to protect those Shiites that the Americans had just built up and then backstabbed. And that occupation of Saudi Arabia throughout the H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton years and into W. Bush in order to bomb and blockade Iraq. That was the primary motivation 
for Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan's Arab terrorist mercenaries to turn against the United States and attack us on September 11th. And of course, then the rest is history. After that, America went to Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Somalia, Libya, Syria, Yemen, killed something like four million people, created 37 million refugees. In a series of wars that are universally agreed now to have been completely unnecessary, wars of choice, as they call them, that we didn't have to fight at all and against an enemy that had belonged to the United States before it was provoked into turning against us. Everybody knows that. Now Russia. H.W. Bush oversaw the final stages of the end of the Cold War and the dissolution of the Soviet Empire. And when he did, he promised Mikhail Gorbachev, the last general secretary of the USSR, and then later the Russians who took over for him, that America would not take advantage of Soviet withdrawal from Germany, from East Germany, and from the West, the rest of Eastern Europe. And they were lying. They promised not one inch, but they knew that they were just manipulating the Soviets, telling them what they needed to hear to get them out of the way in the short term. They promised them they were gonna make NATO a political arrangement, sort of like the EU, but including the US too. And to replace NATO as a military alliance, they would build up the partnership for peace. And Russia and Ukraine and even Kazakhstan and everyone could join. And that was the promise they made the Reds, and they knew they were lying when they said it. It was just what they knew the Soviets needed to hear to get out of the way. Then the great liar Bill Clinton comes to power. And of course, he broke the promise and brought three nations, Hungary, the Czech Republic, and Poland, into NATO. He launched the shock therapy economic policy, where instead of helping the Soviets change their economy to a free market capitalist system, they converted it to the most corrupt crony type of system and literally imagine a Soviet economy, a, a, an actual literal communist economy where the government owns everything. And having that transformed to an American style capitalist system and millions of people die of poverty, of deprivation. Because the Americans, instead of giving them free market capitalism, they gave them the Larry Summers treatment. They gave them crony capitalism, shock therapy, and they just liquidated all their wealth and helped a few oligarchs take it all out of the country. It was kicking them while they're down in the very worst way. Um, and he also committed the high treason of backing bin Laden's forces in Bosnia, Kosovo, and in Chechnya. In fact, after September 11th, Bill Clinton and two of his House Democratic allies mused along the lines, how could these Muslims attack us after everything we've done for them lately? Well, we bought them, you know, gave them support, but failed to buy their loyalty. Clinton had. W. Bush comes in, he just makes matters worse. First of all, he tears up the anti-ballistic missile treaty and he starts putting anti-missile systems in Poland and Romania. The problem with that is the missile launchers that launch those anti-missile missiles can also hold tomahawks. 
that can be tipped with hydrogen bombs. So that was essentially cheating at least on the spirit of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. He also launched the color-coded revolutions, which were essentially coup d'etats dressed up as revolutions. And Clinton had started this in Serbia in 2000, but then W. Bush took it to Georgia in 2003, Ukraine with the Orange Revolution of 2004, and then there was a failed denim revolution in Belarus in 2005. They overthrew Kyrgyzstan in 2005, at least uh, temporarily. Tried and failed in um, Lebanon with the Cedar Revolution. And you're familiar all uh, with, if you remember early Obama, the Green Revolution in Iran, which failed, but along the same template. In fact, they kind of did something like this here in 2020. Um, so uh, he also, uh, W. Bush, added nine more nations to NATO, including the Baltic states right on Russia's border. And I don't know if you know, but there's a tiny little strip of land called Kaliningrad on the Baltic Sea, sandwiched between Lithuania and Poland, but it's Russian territory. It's a Russian naval base. But if you're in Russia looking east, it's now locked behind NATO lines because America went and expanded NATO into that area. And we saw where this almost became a conflict because the Russians just have access to it by a, a railway. And at the beginning of the war, about a year and a half ago, the Lithuanians started restricting what the Russians could ship on that railway. And it heightened tensions immediately. It could have led right to war between Russia and NATO right at that point. And America told the Lithuanians not to enforce the EU sanctions because they knew it could lead to war if they pushed it. That's the situation that W. Bush helped to put us in there. And in fact, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but there are these two Russian radio show hosts who do prank calls, and they keep tricking American politicians into making admissions. And they pretended to be Zelensky on a phone call with W. Bush. And they said to him, ha, 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 isn't that funny the way your father promised not to expand NATO, but then you brought nine more countries in, ha, ha, ha. And W. Bush says, ha, ha, yep, times change. That's it. And then in 2008, he went to Bucharest, and he could not get the Germans and the French to go along with a promise to bring Georgia and with a real plan to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO, but he got a half measure and he went ahead and announced anyway that eventually we're going to bring Ukraine and Georgia, and I'm not talking about the one between South Carolina and Florida here. You know, when, when the Russians sent troops in shortly after this in Georgia in 2008, the news headlines were Russian troops roll into Georgia, and there literally were Americans that were afraid because they've never heard of Georgia because we're talking about former Soviet Georgia, which is this tiny little country between the Black and the Caspian Sea. And I don't know if you can even picture that in your map of Eurasia that you have in your head right now in the Southern Caucasus Mountains, this tiny little country that could never be a legitimate part of America's national interest whatsoever. It seemed like if troops rolled in there, we wouldn't even hear of that or know about that except that it's a major outpost of the American empire. We've got listening stations there. We've got pipelines through there, and we're trying to prevent other pipelines from going the wrong direction through there. And that territory is everything to the American imperialists. And so when Bush promised to bring you, uh, Georgia and Ukraine into NATO in 08, the 
coup d'etat president of Georgia, the one who had been installed in the Rose Revolution of 03, launched a war against two breakaway provinces because you have to have settled borders to join NATO. And he had these problems with these breakaway provinces, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, so he attacked them. And the Russians uh, were, Russian peacekeepers were killed in the initial assault. And so then the Russian army came rolling under the Roki uh, tunnel under the Caucasus Mountains. And at that point, Dick Cheney is reported credibly to have proposed missile strikes against the Russian forces coming under the Caucasus Mountains. And W. Bush at the National Security Council said, who here agrees with Vice that we need to start a war with Russia right now? And nobody raised their hand. And so the cool, patient wisdom of George W. Bush paid off. And we were saved. But, but Dick Cheney at that time was a heartbeat. If Technically, that's right, a heartbeat, W. Bush's heartbeat away from the ability to decide that for us himself. And that was in 08. Obama comes in, and in 2014, he did another color-coded revolution. They called the Revolution of Dignity and overthrew the government of Ukraine. This immediately led to the loss of the Crimean Peninsula back to Russia and the outbreak of war in the East. Also, the Minsk I and Minsk II peace deals, which Germany and France went and negotiated with Obama's consent. But we know now, because so many of the principals involved have bragged and boasted about it, that they never meant to live up to the status of those Minsk, II peace Minsk I and II peace deals, that all they were doing was biding their time while they were building up the Ukrainian military. They never meant to respect the autonomy of the far eastern provinces of Ukraine which was one of the major points of contention leading up to the war. He also brought Albania and Croatia into NATO. Imagine Croatia being a NATO ally. They're going to come to our defense if we're attacked. Is that right? Good for us. And remember the hot mic moment when Obama was caught backstage on a hot microphone saying, just wait till I get reelected and then I can be more reasonable. You tell Vlad I said that. Well, he was lying, not to us, he was lying to President Medvedev. What was he saying? He was saying, once I'm reelected, then I will shut down the anti-missile stations in Romania and Poland. And that wasn't true. He continued to implement that through the rest of his presidency. And it remained a point of contention all the way in the lead up to the war. Again, the missile launchers that hold those Sparrow anti-missile missiles can also launch Tomahawk cruise missiles that can be tipped with H-bombs. And so Barack Obama was just shining Medvedev on, and he continued right along after he was reelected there, hot mic or not. Now Trump came in famously, he said, we should get along with Russia, wouldn't that be great? What's wrong with that? And so they framed him for high treason. And they pretended, really, like if you guys were not into politics at this time, you might even not even believe me if I told you the story of the Russiagate hoax and the 10,000 lies that they leveled against this guy and his team to try to make it look like somehow the Kremlin had done a coup d'etat and overthrown the government of the United States of America and installed, you know, the most famous one of us, the most well-known, one of the most wealthiest Americans, a guy who's like Americana himself, he's like Mickey Mouse, this guy Donald Trump, he's an American brand name, and somehow, no, Americans only chose him because the Russians made us do it. Hit them and the racists. 
but it worked, and it hemmed Donald Trump in so badly on his Russia policy. I don't even know if he controlled it at all. One uh, expert bragged to the New York Times, well, you know, Donald Trump is like the captain of a ship. He has a wheel, but it's not attached to anything. And he can say whatever he wants about what he wants his Russia policy to be, but the interagency has decided what our foreign policy will be, and they'll win. And as we saw, they literally, again, you might not believe me if you missed it, they impeached the President of the United States for the third time in history for temporarily holding up an arms deal to Ukraine until he could get them to look at, is all he said, not even, I demand you launch an investigation or else. I just think you ought to look at what was going on with that whole Biden getting that prosecutor fired thing. And now as more and more information comes out, we know good and well, their excuse that Biden wanted that prosecutor fired for corruption was wrong. He was covering for corruption. And we have it in the words of Hunter Biden's bosses at Burisma in written documents in their email. The only reason we hired you guys is to protect us from these prosecutions get to work and they said we're doing everything we can so and they impeached they impeached Donald Trump for that it's incredible but you know he went along he was not Ron Paul he was not even Rand Paul and and he escalated the amount of weapons that he sent and and you know when when he uh, hit uh, Syria, which is a Russian ally, his son bragged, see, they can't call us Russian agents now, we hit Syria. That was how their policy got so constrained. Um, and then, of course, uh, Joe Biden came in, and he continued to make Ukraine a de facto NATO ally. It's called interoperability, where they standardize everything in Ukraine's military to equal out with ours. So they're using our same kind of artillery and the rest of that, so that if we go to war, we can make them a de facto ally. And, you know, there was an article in Yahoo News, it's a great piece by a guy named Zach Dorfman, and he quotes the CIA themselves, literally the men who were delivering the arms to Ukraine. And these men were saying that they were telling the bosses, we shouldn't be doing this. We are supposedly, we have calibrated, that was what they kept saying in the New York Times, we calibrated the amount of weapons that we're pouring into Ukraine. We want just the right amount to deter Putin from invading, but not so much that it provokes him, their words, into invading. And these CIA officers then told the press, we tried to tell them, you've calibrated it wrong. The amount of weapons that you're pouring in are going to provoke a war. But they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't stop. It's a government program. And they continued. And when uh, Vladimir Putin proposed a reasonable treaty, not perfect, not that America had to come right to sign on the bottom line, but a reasonable basis for negotiation, Biden told them no. He said, we'll give you informal assurances. We won't bring Ukraine into NATO soon, but we won't do better than that. He said, we'll negotiate over inspections over those missile launchers in Romania and Poland, but then he refused to hold the talks to set up the inspection regime. And so they forced the war. Now, I'm not justifying what Vladimir Putin did in deciding this war. If it's an analogy, I think America put his back to the wall, but not necessarily all the way in a corner. And there were alternatives to fighting. And 
He didn't take them. But then again, it was America that put his back to the wall. And what do you think is going to happen? You put somebody's back to the wall, especially a guy like that. And they really did force the issue. There's a British scholar that wrote a paper called Putin's Invasion, Now or Never. And again, it's not a, it's not a justification, but it's just explaining from Vladimir Putin's point of view, he knew he was going to have to do this. America was putting him in the position where he was going to have a, a fully armed NATO ally right two, 300 miles from Moscow. It was an intolerable situation and he was going to have to do something about it. I believe if you look at all the different talk from the run-up to the war about how we want to replicate the Afghanistan model. They told the New York Times, we don't know how to fight an insurgency, but we know, sure know how to back one. And we think once Russia invades, they assume they'll conquer the Ukrainian military and then we'll back an insurgency, a long-time insurgency, and bleed them on the Afghan model. This is just two months after they lost the Afghan war. And they got Afghanistan in the mouth as their model for how they want to do this. This is just a few years. They said, yeah, like we did in Syria. But that led to the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq War III to destroy it again. Are you crazy? Yes, they're crazy. And they pushed it. Uh, and then look, even now, it's a year and a half into the war and they refused to negotiate. Last October, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, hey, this is as good a position of strength as you're going to be in. You got to quit now while you're only this far behind and you ought to come to the table. And then Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said, don't listen to the military guys. They don't know what they're talking about. Keep fighting. And, and now they've done nothing but lose. Their offensive has been a disaster. And they're now in danger of losing Kharkiv, where last summer they'd won it back. And we'll see how that goes. But that goes to show the Americans' motive in the war. They want, as they keep saying, they want to keep the war going to kill Russians. That's the end in itself when you ask them. And now look, we are picking a fight with China. It's the same thing over Taiwan. The same people that say that Ukraine has every right to invade and conquer their breakaway provinces in the Donbass, and that Russia has no right to protect the independence of the Donbass, are the same people that say that China has no right whatsoever to retake their renegade province, Taiwan, and we have every right to play the role of Russia in guaranteeing the independence of that breakaway province. Which just goes to show you that the rules-based liberal international order of law and cooperation is a lie. These are, it's purely the American empire and its interests at stake. They don't mean what they say when they say they're only doing what's right. And look, Obama started this with his big pivot to Asia. Trump doubled it with, and, and that included, you know, massive military escalations and exercises and stationing of naval forces over there, massive increases of spending, the B-21 bomber program and all new battleships and new carrier fleet and all the rest of it. Trump came in, did all that, and then added the trade war. And as libertarians know, uh, you know, this is as Frederick Bastiat said back in the 19th century, where goods do not cross borders, soldiers will. And that's, in one case, he's talking about just, you know, invading for the resources, taking a coal mine you need or something like that. But also, he's just talking about when people have mutual economic interests at stake, it dissuades them. It's a counter incentive to violent conflict. So now in America, we have the Walmarts of our corporate world 
who have a stake in free trade, open trade relationships and peace and stability with China, but we have Northrop Grumman and Lockheed and a lot of other interests involved in the war machine who would rather have conflict, and they're winning out. And the more that we buy into, say, for example, this guy, Vivek Ravaswamy's uh, idea that we need to completely separate our economy from China's, is just making war and including the threat of nuclear war with China that much more likely. And the reality is, guys, the reality is, no matter what your magic wish, the U.S. Navy cannot protect Taiwan. It's 90 miles off their coast. Imagine China's Navy trying to prevent America from taking Cuba. They can't do it, and neither can we. Taiwan is 7,000 miles from San Diego, okay? And they, the Chinese, now have enough of a naval force. I just interviewed one of the greatest experts from the Naval War College about this last week. They have the force, the standoff force, to keep us away, to sink half of our naval fleet. To, to splash our Air Force right out of the sky. We don't have the ability to fight for Taiwan. And you know, people talk about the threat of somebody like Xi or Putin using nukes. What about somebody like Joe Biden using nukes? I ask you to imagine the loss of a few battleships or even an aircraft carrier to the bottom of the Pacific. And what do you think Joe Biden or even you know, Marco Rubio or whoever in his same position would do with the loss of thousands of sailors? The loss, not, a war that would make Afghanistan and Iraq look like nothing, where we're losing thousands and thousands and thousands of sailors and airmen um, and aviators every day. We would go to nuclear war and it would be the end of the world. Over Taiwan, you've got to be kidding me. It's wrong, it's crazy and it's wrong. And the more that we arm up Taiwan and create this situation, again, oh, we're calibrating the weapons to deter China from invading. No, we're provoking them. America's arming up of Taiwan is why China has armed up now an invasion force and is prepared to invade. We need to back the hell out of there now. All right, and that's it. I'm sorry I'm out of time. Uh, but the problem here is the doctrine of global dominance, and we need to renounce it. As Ron Paul said, we just marched in. We can just come home. Thank you very much. Yeah.